Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello, and here we go. This is Drive-by Cinema, Season 3, Episode 30, we decided we were going to call it, didn't we? This is my co-host, Paul. Hello, and welcome to everybody to Drive-by Cinema. And this is my co-host, Richard. Watching the movies so you don't have to. And you certainly don't have to. Now, listener Jolien, though, has been watching some of these movies. Oh, jolly good. Uh, Indeed, he has been showing uh, his daughter the Studio Ghibli movies, (laughs) including Spirited Away. Really? Oh, well done. I think she might have been a little bit afraid by Spirited Away. It's a bit... Yes, uh, that would be understandable. Some frightening moments in it, but on the whole, it's. It, I think it's a formative experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I think we were right in just flagging up that it might be a bit scary. Uh, but Jolien also said, speaking to things that you mentioned last week, right? That he does. He does not agree with your suggestion that the BBC needs adverts. Well, I, I mean, it was meant to be provocative, so. It was certainly provocative, Paul. Well done. And it has sparked and spawned debate, and therefore in itself uh, has has worth, I think. Now, uh, have you got any other corrections or additions? Or Well, I mean, uh, speaking of listener Jolie, apparently we missed something with the movie Trust. and Oh, he's still cogitating on that, I think. Yeah, what did we miss? I don't know yet. Oh, I don't know we haven't. I have to... Well, yeah, Maybe if I retract to... my privatisation suggestions to the BBC, Jolly might be more forthcoming on on those on those ideas. Yeah, well, maybe we again we're going to try and encourage him, entice him as a guest. Indeed, he has been on once before, or maybe twice. I can't remember how many times. He also mentioned, yeah, that TV detector fans, which we thought were very unlikely to have been used detecting TVs. Yeah. He mentioned the technology that the Nazis used to oh. track down secret agents. You know, broadcasting, uh, broadcasting from radio, secret radios behind bookshelves and in cupboards and stuff. Cranking up the old generator, hand hand driven generator thing. Well, I think they had batteries. Oh, oh in, okay. in those days. Uh, so he mentioned one <laughs> famous female agent who fell foul of these detector vans. Violet Zarbo, apparently, was was caught using one of them. Uh, so, I mean, true, of course, in that era, people broadcasting, transmitting from their homes. Obviously, you can pick that up. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're sending a signal and you're in Germany or occupied Europe... Pretty much anybody hoping, in Germany can pick it up, I guess. Well, and they were hoping someone in, you know, Britain was going to pick it up or, mm-hmm. you know... Way, way across the continent. So it's not surprising they could detect that, even with crude detection equipment. Is it, really? And they, I think they used to drive around and triangulate to find where the signals were coming from. Uh. So, I mean, the standard secret agent practice would only to broadcast for the short time so they didn't have time to triangulate you properly. Facing the sunset. And- oh, no, that's something else, isn't it? And I think you try not to do it at the same time every week or whatever. You know, you try and do it at different times. Difficult to arrange that, though, because you need to hook up with your 
you know, your radio contact, don't you, at an appropriate moment? I guess you could be very, if you had the money and sophistication, you could have, you know, you could you could have a recorded message and then lay down the receiver and have it self-destruct afterwards, having vacated the premises beforehand. Yeah, if you're Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not if you're building your own, like, radio <laughs> transmitter out <laughs> in World War II. <laughs> These days, of course, you could just send an email, I guess. Uh so. You'd send an encrypted email, yeah, wouldn't you? Or telegram message, yeah, something similar. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think you would use... Like, number stations, which we've discussed before, of course, mm-hmm. I'm not sure they're really used by agents anymore. I don't think... So is there hope if... I mean, if, if TV detective vans are not true, is, is there a hope that speed cameras are just completely made-up things? Oh, Paul. Yes, <laughs> I'm afraid. Although I think phony speed cameras do exist... Yeah. I'm afraid there are plenty that do actually work. Oh dear. So you may have to pay that by the sound of it, you're you're gonna be on a speed awareness course, aren't you? Very soon, yeah. Coming to a cinema near you. Definitely. It won't be fast and furious for me anymore. Half M V squared, Paul. Just remember that. <laughs> Stopping distance and thinking distance. I mean, you know, when the highway code was put together. Stopping distances were much longer, maybe? Oh, maybe oh in, almost infinitely, you know. I mean, if you compare a car now, a decent car, which cars, I mean, Mercedes are, are renowned for having really good braking, you know, strong brakes compared to their weight, aren't they? Uh, uh, no, but here, here's physics for you, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how good your brakes are. The point at which your tyres break away and start skidding. Yes. That's the upper bound of your it is, stopping yeah. potential. Yeah, you're right, yeah. And almost any car, if you turn the ABS off, almost any car would be able to skid if you broke hard enough. You know, so so even old fashioned, you know, drum brakes and really spongy brake kind of vehicles would still be able to make themselves, especially if you yank the handbrake, right? Make themselves skid. So yeah. Actually, what determines your stopping distance and indeed your acceleration is your tread. Is it is that little patch of rubber underneath each tire? Yeah, completely. Tires well, as, you, as you say, stopping distances are greatly improved. I think, however, from even tires are better. Tires thirty are better, or forty years ago, yeah, yeah. And ABS means you get peak that, yeah, braking yeah. out of you know out of your vehicle. It manages the braking torque, if we could imagine it as such. ABS calls works by momentarily releasing the brake pressure as soon as it detects, uh, what's the word? Critical uh, values. The locking of your Skid wheels. values, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, basically, if the wheel is no longer turning, then it releases the brakes. That's basically how it works. And that's what that pulses when you stamp down hard. Is it letting go of the brake on a regular basis? Hmm. Paul, you seem nonplussed. Well, I'm, I'm subdued <laughs> from my message, from my letter from the local constabulary. So. Well, you're a criminal now. You're on the run. <laughs> oh, yes. Head towards the Euro Tunnel at full pelt. Paul, I have instigated a brand new system for recording the movies we're going to watch, but also the movies we have watched. Ah. And 
I've got a, another list, a third list for the movies we are in the middle of watching this month, say. I see. All on a service called Letterboxd, with no E at the end. I see. And you've had a look at it. What do you think? I'm very, very impressed. Okay. It, it's a much more uh, inviting and enticing way to store a long list of film titles. Definitely. Each comes with an attractive interactive thumbnail, okay, which opens up into suggestions. Well, summary of the plot, uh, background of the movie, and I think also uh, watching options too. That's right. Yeah. So I will add that link somewhere on our social media, whatever that is. Put it on our Discord and put it on our podcast description so that people can see not only what we have watched, what's coming up, and maybe what's uh, in the future. That's probably, you know, the best way of doing it. Uh, So, with all of that said, Paul, shall we talk about this week's movie after some music? Here comes the music. So it is February. It was February. Very soon not to be February, as of this midnight. Yeah, by the time you're listening to this, it won't be February anymore. But we watched this movie in February, and we're reviewing it still. In the month of Valentine's Day. And I've realised that I think everything we watched this month has been kind of a romance, a love story of one kind or another. Mm. Is that is that is that true? That's a, That would be a fair observation, one that I hadn't noted. But yes, absolutely. It was by accident, complete coincidence. So last week's movie was Your Name, mm-hmm. which some uh, some people have said is one of the best love stories ever, which is uh, a bold statement, but possibly true. The week before, it was Spirited Away. Yeah. And, you know, young protagonist, but, you know, she meets a, a boy who, who, in a sense, she's loved all her life. Absolutely, yeah. And then before that, it was, was it trust or it was trust? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a, a late eighties kind of love story between two misfits. Spits. Yes. And then we had Harold and no thingy Jerry and Marge go, go large, large, which was in a sense, uh, uh, you know, uh, it was an, an older couple, but finding the joy for life and one another as well. So it's all kind of romantic, isn't it? <laughs> Are you about to sell his life insurance, Richard? <laughs> I don't know. Are you interested? Maybe. Uh, so, Paul, what's this week's film and why is it suitable? <sighs> okay. So, uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure. It's, it is about love. In a it's sense. a romance. It is a romance. It's a romance. It's also a horror. It's also a shocker. Uh, and I guess it's also something of a very dark comedy. Uh, it is Happy Death Day. Happy Death Day. Mm-hmm. 2016 or 17. I will have to check that up in just a second. Okay. Uh, obviously, uh, a play on the idea of Happy Birthday, Happy Death Day. Uh, it happens to be the protagonist's birthday, uh, the day on which she repeatedly uh, has to relive her death. Okay, if that's not giving too much away too early. 
protagonist whose name is strangely called Tree. Tree, yes. Tree. Now, you might think, is she a hippie? Um, she seems to be a standard American college sorority girl. Okay. Uh, perhaps internally or unconsciously battling that identity, yearning to be free from it. Okay. But as far as you see in the first half of the movie, she's very much conforming to sorority, sorority standards of... Sisterhood, I guess. Well, this is it, isn't it? She's going to develop through the movie from a kind of vapid, surface-level, shallow sorority girl just doing college girl stuff into someone worthy of being, you know, perhaps in a relationship with a young man. Yeah. You might say, you know, this life is trapping her. She might feel that she's living a death anyway. So is is it about ultimately about self-realisation? I guess it is in the arms of a wholesome hero. This is directed by Christopher Landon. Big name. Uh, well, what has he worked on? I did just check it up, but I've forgotten. Forgotten already. I think he did some writing work for the Paranormal Activity series. No, no, no. He did all the Paranormal. That's it. Okay. Did he? Yes. Okay. But not the first one. So not I've remembered, yeah. Okay. 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 <laughs> So he did all that, uh, but not the first one, I don't think. And then some more other big stuff too. Okay. Around that, yeah. But it's directed by Jason Blum, who's also a gigantic name, I think. Okay. I thought he direct. I thought Landon directed this. Landon did. Sorry, produced. I'm sorry, produced, produced. by uh, Jason Blum. Good, good job you're all over this, Paul, to keep it straight and narrow. <laughs> So produced by Jason Blum, okay, who has his own uh, production house, which uh, is called Blumhouse Productions, I think. All right, all right. So, Tree wakes up in a college dorm room. Not her own. Uh, not her own. It's a guy there who's a bit embarrassed that she's there in a way. Uh, he's called Carter. She swears him to secrecy. She doesn't want anyone to know that she's in some dork's like college dorm. Because uh, let's face facts. I mean, she's a nine, nine point five. Sure. Uh, well, he, 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 I mean, she's a ten in terms of in terms of sorority fraternity kind of uh, value systems, isn't she? I mean, definitely. Well, I think we maybe better talk about what a sorority or a fraternity is because we don't have them in do, question. Do we have them in British universities? No, we maybe. have. Uh, the, I mean, the closest we get is sports societies, which have been really clamped down upon anyway, haven't they? Oh, drinking society. Drinking society. Is, yeah. is that a better way of putting yes. it? Because I don't think there's very much sport involved, is there? Uh, the famous ones are rugby for boys, rugby for girls to some extent, and hockey for girls. In the UK. There's the Bullingdon Club, of course, which that's a whole nother level, isn't it? I think Cambridge, is it, though? Cambridge has a pit club, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, but a whole, they, they own their own restaurants and kind of like uh, unions, don't they? Private unions kind of thing. So I think they're very close in essence, to what a sorority or fraternity in the US would feel like as a social circle. So where has this idea come from? They're called the letter sororities or fraternities, aren't they? Mm -hmm. So the normally three Greek letters is how you describe them. There were two mentioned in this. I don't think they're real ones. Um, There's the one she's in and there's another one that they go to, isn't it? So essentially, I mean, they begin. They began as lodging societies, you know, to 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 organize lodging around universities. But the American way is, of course, student self organization. So uh, students self organized into into these these lodges, and I, I guess they include a lot of that natural stuff that happens 
in colleges around the world, like, you know, college parents and college kids kind of thing. And, you know, senior years taking care of freshman years and that kind of thing, taking people under the wing. Uh, and I think, you know, in the early days when they performed a functional function, uh, it was all about study groups and, you know, getting in a fraternity or sorority where, where you, you know, your discipline uh, could be pursued with other like-minded people. So the archetypical fraternity, which is the boys one, or sorority, which is the girls Alpha Kappa Delta, yeah. Because it's... Uh, it comes to the Latin, doesn't it? Fraternity for brother and sorority yes. for sister. The archetypical thing is you have a house, a large house, mm-hmm. you know, multi-room, that would be owned by the sorority or fraternity. And As a charity, presumably, or something like that. So what I don't understand is, when a student goes to college, presumably they're not a member of a fraternity or a sorority. And so they can't be staying in that house. No, I think you have to wait till you matriculate until you're initiated. So that they go through this process of pledging, don't they, and hazing yes. the uh, the pledges. Hazing less the... so these days, I think. And then when you're in, you can live in the fraternity or sorority house. That's right, yeah. So you... Yeah, so I, I don't quite understand. So is it that after the, your first year, you might be able to get That's a the- detailed question that I can't provide you don't an answer know, I don't to. Know. It's confusing. I do know that, you know, it's not just paying rent. Also, you'll be obliged to fulfill a role and occupy a level, a social stratum within the house that might involve chores or that kind of thing. So, And they have a kind of philanthropic angle as well, don't they? Sororities and fraternities. I think supposedly raising money for charity, but it's a strongly sort of class-based thing, isn't it? Especially for, usually for America. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's not a mere meritocracy. Quite often it seems to be who you know, who your parents were, whether or not you get in. And it used to be strongly stratified into certain social groups and ethnic groups as well, I think. Still very much so, I think. I mean, at one point, they were all white, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think there have been more uh, diverse sororities and fraternities. But I think they started off being like, um, what's the word? Segregated, didn't they, effectively? Oh, definitely, uh, yeah. 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 So, yeah, very strongly class-based. So I think it, if you're in a sorority like Tree is, you're considered a cut above the normal student, right? And presumably all the other students are just in dorm rooms. Yes. Uh, or dormitories. I don't know the participation rate of them, but I assume it's significant, but not possibly not the majority of students. And I guess it's not something that really happens at community college either, is it? I mean, And in the UK, to the extent that this still happens, because again, it's a long time since I was at university, but most universities, uh, most of the students would either live in halls of residence in hall, mm-hmm. I suppose. For at least the first year, yeah. And halls of residence are typically big places with hundreds and hundreds of people in them. Mm-hmm. Or you might live out in student accommodation, but they'd be much smaller houses. I mean, there might be five or six, maybe eight people, but they wouldn't usually be as big as the way a frat house or a sorority house is depicted. Now, there are some universities in the UK that are college-based, which mm-hmm. are uh, Oxford, I think Durham is the same, isn't it? It is, yeah. St. Andrews also, I think. 
And in that, when you apply to the university, you actually apply to a college within that university. And they're the ones who actually, um, you know, interview you and accept you or reject you. And so all of your accommodation and stuff is initially arranged through that college. But again, the college is still much bigger than presumably a frat house because it's going to be like a whole, well, I mean, it's it's just much bigger, isn't it? So it's, I don't see any equivalent really uh, to... There isn't one, is there, really? It, it's... Except those clubs you mentioned, those, those drinking society clubs and sports society clubs, which have a really unpleasant association quite often in British universities. Could be, no? Now, okay, so the other thing that we've got to deal with here is another trope. This time, a time-travelling trope. Yeah. Which is the scene that is going to get repeated again and again, just to hammer home that we're in a time travel situation. Now, this wasn't done to save money because every time the scene was different, but I guess they could actually shoot in the same room every time. So there we go. So it's, it's this whole sequence, actually, where Tree wakes up in the college dorm. She leaves, bumping into his roommate, who's had to spend the night outside in his car because uh, he realised that Carter was in there with a girl. And then she walks through what I'm going to describe as a quad. It is a quad, which, yeah. Uh, of the college where a series of little vignettes happen that we're going to remember later, you know, like someone falling over because they're fainting. and so At the same uh, time, oh, this the co- is the light, not the black humour. You know, there's, there's a light kind of sardonic look at college life in this walkthrough, isn't there? Kind of like several gentle stereotypes are presented of college students. And uh, uh, initially, that- her attitude allows her to dismiss all of them in... in Yes, she's very dismissive, yeah. They're she's quite keen money, to get where she's going and, and for no one to see that she spent the night in the dorm room with this uh, with this guy. Somebody's, he, he's, you know, maybe 7.5 most, isn't he? I don't think he's that bad, Paul. It's just he's not in her social no, I mean, in terms, because... in terms of in terms of sorority ratings, yeah. I mean, he's definitely very handsome, but, you know, he's, he's presented in quite uh, a subdued and acoustic kind of unplugged way, isn't he? He's MTV unplugged. And as she's exiting the quad, she meets a guy who apparently she's been on a date with. She's criticising him. Yeah. He took her apparently to Subway for their first date. And she says, you know, it's not as if like you had a foot long. Which is one of the best lines in the movie. <laughs> apparently the actress ad-libbed that line. Kudos. Uh, so Jessica Roth. Gets- I don't know if she went on to bigger Jessica things. Roth, yeah. Uh, she's she was great in this. I think mm-hmm. she did do some really cool stuff. I think I, I looked it up. But she gets back to her sorority house, where she gets sort of slut shamed by her sorority sister, and her roommate Happy gives birthday. her the, her rundown of her drunken misdeeds, and yes, knows that it's her birthday. Apparently, weirdly, by checking her driving license or something. Mm-hmm. Apparently she wasn't open about a birthday. But she's got her own little birthday cake, little cupcake with a candle in it. Oh, how sweet. But Tree, obviously, is not going to have those carbs, so she chucks it straight in the bin. Rude. Roommate seems actually upset, actually deeply hurt, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. So you might think, oh, maybe... uh, Well, anyway, you might think stuff about that. Tree goes off to her lecture, 
a chemistry lecture. Now, what on earth was this lecture? He was talking about quantum interference in the patient or something like that. What was going on? Oh, it's some kind of biochem... He's a doctor, isn't he, actually? So it must be some kind of... way out on the cutting edge there, though, isn't he? I mean, for... for Pharmacology or something, I don't know. You know, there's some pretty advanced stuff they were doing there in Pharmacology 101. It's obvious in the lecture that she has the hot... He's British, got British accent. I mean, how can you resist it? Quite so. Uh, And then uh, she winds up in a a sorority meeting, like I think it's some kind of lunchtime, like meeting about some kind of charity. The sorority head is there to essentially, you know, under the vestiges of holding a meeting about charity to really corral and discipline her girls into sororal obedience, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of mean girls sarcasm, some fat shaming going on, etc. Yeah, okay, and an obsession with diet. And then Carter arrives to embarrass her. Apparently, she left something in his gold room. bracelet or something like that. And I think he knocks over someone's drink. He's getting up and, and leaving, and spills it all over. She's her. desperately embarrassed. Uh, and then she goes to the hospital, mm-hmm. where in the lift she meets her roommate, who apparently. Works as a nurse to pay her way through college. Yeah. And she gives her this warning, actually. And she says, um, you know, there'll be consequences for what you're doing here. And, you know, I, I thought perhaps she was there, maybe she was getting an abortion because she ah. maybe got pregnant or that she got she was going for an STD test or something and a roommate was embarrassing her. But no, that's not what it was about, it seems. Turns out she's going to see this doctor who was le- who is her lecturer, and also a lecturer, and <laughs> this doctor, Gregory Butler's, uh, she goes to his office and they start snogging, don't they? Luckily, the door is locked because no, well, just a second later, there's you know, an insistent rap on the door and it turns out to be his wife. Yeah, so... There you go, he's married, he's doing the dirty on his wife. Uh, but she doesn't seem to care. Um, she's going to a party later on. She's ignoring calls from her dad, even though we know it's her birthday. So I presume mm, Somehow she's lured into a tunnel. I don't know quite now how she's lured into a tunnel with lots of stolen traffic cones. Uh, um, this guy is watching creepily. Yeah. And th- this is the scream kind of slasher movie yes. kind of element coming in. There's a guy watching... In the background, she arrives at this underpass, as you say. There's a little jewelry box playing "Happy Birthday" in the middle of it. And as she bends down to pick it up, this man appears from where he wasn't before, and he's wearing this very creepy baby mask. Yeah, it was creepy. Face. Um, It's great acting throughout from Jessica Roth because there's a moment here where she she clearly doesn't want to seem frightened. Mm -hmm. She wants to project, you know. You know, defiance and, and confidence, but she really plays plays it off well, and you can see a hesitant moment of what the hell is going on here. It's She's great. bludgeoned to death, I think, in this occasion, isn't she? On this occasion, that's right. She gets stabbed, not bludgeoned. Oh, it's a big kitchen knife. It is, yeah, yeah. And you might think, oh dear, you know, our All hero already dead, mm-hmm. but no, of course, Groundhog Day style. <laughs> she wakes up immediately. Again in- in Carter's dorm. Whoa. And she remembers Carter's name. She'd hadn't the previous day. He doesn't uh, remember her, of course, because he's living his life. Yeah. 
To him, it's the first time this has happened. She storms out of his room, noting on the back of his door, there's a sticker saying, today is the first day of the rest of your life. There are some nice little progressions here. Like the first time he has to root to find uh, the headache uh, painkillers, the painkillers that's going to cure her hangover. I think the second time around, she tells them. She tells him where they they are. are, Exactly. Okay. (laughs) There's stuff like that going on each time we return. Because we return several times to this. So this is quad walk number two. Where she asks someone the time, actually, and they say, Monday the 18th. Uh, and there's a, a quote here, deja vu means someone is thinking about you while they're masturbating. <laughs> Interesting. It explains why That's I don't weird. feel deja vu anymore. Yeah. That's, I don't know how somebody's worked that out. But. This time, she doesn't bin her roommate's cake. She just puts it on the side. So, ah. slight progression this time. And uh, she passes by a stand where these baby masks are on sale. Apparently, it's like for their football team. It's like paraphernalia. Which a big difference is big business. College football is as big as the Premier League here in the UK. Indeed. Yeah, well, college football games are massive, aren't they? College sport generally is not just highly financed and sponsored. It's also a great revenue maker for the colleges. Okay, That's amazing, isn't it? It's an astonishing amount of money, but why, though? Why should it be so highly financed? I don't know, but at the very least, you know, if, you, if, if you're paying $8,000 for the sporting provision, I think we should all get a free gym membership out of that. They don't seem to get that, do they? So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I mean, the people on the sports team at college sports uh, uh, people on a college sports team are effectively professional athletes, aren't they? They are. I mean, the point is that they the teams make money too. So it's 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 like they're getting revenue from you know the spectators and whatnot. And on top of that, they get this kind of you know gravy train fund of you know several thousand dollars per enrolled student on the academic courses. So you know, there's so much money being put into the teams. Could it ever work here? I don't think so. It doesn't seem like it's the same. I mean, well, do we need sport to be so successful? Do we want our universities filled with people who are only there because they they can do sport? It seems Probably a strange not. requirement, doesn't it, for study? It does, yeah. 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 So, anyway, th- this time when Carter bumps into her, he actually forgets to hand her the bracelet. He forgot why he was there anyway. So he has, she has to prompt and is this number two, by the way? This is still number two. She goes to see the doc, of course, and this time she tries to tell him about her weird day. But I don't think he's really all that concerned with her well-being, so it doesn't really get her. She heads to the party, but this time avoids the tunnel. Yeah, she does, and she even spots the baby mask guy watching her to no avail. Uh, but he's called away by his football friends as well. So uh, she goes back. And winds up at the frat house. I think it's Kai Sigma Kappa is their frat house, isn't it? Ah. Uh, the one that she's going to, the party one. Yeah. But the door is locked. Um, and as she's standing there, it opens suddenly. A guy in that baby face mask is standing there. She hits him. But surprise, actually, this is a surprise birthday party for her, and she's just hit a, a random guy. <laughs> <laughs> now, he seems completely smitten with her. Yeah. Uh, but 
her sorority queen, Danielle, is really pissed off because she clearly has the hots for this guy in the baby mask. She's like, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry. He's like, you can make it up to me later. And that really hacks Danielle off. So, But she winds up in, I think, that guy's room. And uh, I think he's called Nick, isn't he? Uh, he's got some sad thing going on where he's got some sort of like party lights, you know, for college seduction to happen there. Yeah, that's right. He puts really banging EDM on <laughs> and a light show and he starts dancing on his own, effectively, while she watches. But while he's doing that, the killer, another baby him. mask guy yeah. appears and stabs him. Um, and well, meanwhile, Tree is placating Danielle. But then uh, uh, there's a fight ensues. Tree gets attacked and she gets stabbed with a broken bong that was in Nick's room. <laughs> she immediately wakes up again and realizes, I think, third time around that she's actually stuck really in a kind of groundhog. Day time loop, yeah. Inescapable. She's frantic, isn't she? She's frantic. She rushes out on quad walk number three. She doesn't linger, goes straight to the sorority house. Her roommate Laurie is concerned about her. Um, she reveals everything to Laurie. She says she knows about the cupcake and the surprise party. Laurie just thinks someone's ratted her, uh, effectively, and spoiled the surprise. And then she barricades a room. Her plan is stay safe. Stay safe. A, a good choice. Goes. Sensible choice. You know, you can't really She's a smart girl. Yeah. yeah. She's just about to eat the cupcake she's been avoiding the last two days. Um, but she's lost the TV remote, so she goes looking for that. And as she does so, she finds a birthday card. And when she opens it, there's a spinning baby face in the middle of it. <laughs> so... She's now freaked out that, you know, the killer is kind of closer to home than she might otherwise have thought. She turns off the uh, the TV. She's paranoid about the closet. Uh, she arms herself with a hammer and she hears a, a noise in the bathroom and turns around. But the baby mask guy appears behind her and slashes at her. She whacks him with a hammer, but she gets stabbed and awakes again. That was number three. Okay. Number three. So we're on quad walk four now, and four. she's totally panicking. She's having a breakdown. Has a mascara has a mascara started to run at this point? She's yeah, she's on the edge. Carter's so worried about her, he follows her out. And she's obviously explained to him, and he hypothesizes that whoever is killing her is doing so because it's her birthday. And she's saying, Well, yeah, maybe I made a bit of an enemy of Danielle, perhaps. Um, She's starting to think of who could be her killer. Gregory's wife, potentially? Yeah, she's hypothesizing different potential killers. And it it transpires during this, she's always been assuming that she'd had sex with Carter the previous night. But Carter now reveals that, in fact, they didn't have sex last night. He was just worried about her, and he wouldn't do that anyway because she was drunk. He's a nice guy. He's not the kind of frat guy that she's used to. So uh, she decides, they figure out that she's sort of got unlimited lives to solve this murder. So she has this plan to discover each time she goes through something about, you know, possible killer. And Is it number four where she sees uh, a TV report as she's discussing with Carter? Uh, about a guy, yeah, in the hospital. Some kind of murderer who's... He's being held at the research hospital on campus. The the hospital that she's been visiting, indeed. Wow. This is also the go-through where uh, she, Called John. John Toombs. 
Also, it's the one where she goes to see Tim, the guy who took her on a date to Subway, and she's looking through his window. She realises that the reason why the date didn't go so well is that actually he's gay because he's watching gay porn. He's obviously not been able to admit it to himself. But while she's watching outside that window, she gets stabbed. Wakes up in Carter's place again. <laughs> then she goes spying on Dr. Greg's wife, Stephanie. Um, but she gets pushed in a pond. And this time when she wakes up in Carter's place, she's spitting out water. So it seems that certain elements of the way that she might have died can sort of transfer over to the next day, to the, the restart. Which is a bit worrying, I suppose. Uh, and she finds a card from Danielle is the one with the baby face in it. So she has a fight with Danielle, but they both get run over by a bus while they're fighting. And so since she's still in the time loop, she concludes it couldn't be Danielle either. So this time she's kind of had enough with it. She does the quad walk naked this time, which apparently was a fun thing to to film. I think they filmed it in um, New Orleans, a, a college campus in New Orleans. Uh, and they did this for real. Um, but she uh, winds up hitting someone with a baseball a baseball bat. Uh, and as she's doing that, uh, the mask guy comes up and hits her and kills her. So she wakes up in Carter's room again. So I lost count um, the number of times she woke up, but it, it must be... We're on six or seven at least. Right. Here, I think. But this time she faints as she's leaving Carter's place. It seems to be taking its toll on her. And she winds up now in a hospital bed on a drip and stuff. And obviously she's in the hospital where Dr. Gregory is. And he appears and he sends Carter away. And we know it's the evening, it's about 9.23, because every time at 9.23 there's always a power blip. Seems there's like a bit of a power outage in the town at the same time every day. Um, well, presumably she's really from the same day, so... Exactly, yeah. And so he says that according to the scans and x-rays, she's suffering all these injuries that she should really be dead. Of course, well, we know. She, she kind of is suffering those injuries. Um, but he says, you're safe here in the hospital because she doesn't really trust him and she sends him away while she flees out of the room. Now, I thought goes... this was maybe... I thought this was a very exciting moment in the movie because she escapes into the multi-story car park. Is that right? Well, she goes to Dr. Greg's office to get his car keys. Right. And when she's looking through the drawers, she finds a baby mask Uh-oh. in the drawer. Um, uh, but then when she meets him in the corridor, the mask guy appears behind him and stabs Dr. Gregory. So that's the point where she runs downstairs to the parking lot. The mask guy is chasing her. And yeah, there's a really tense moment where she's hiding in the car park. She's got the car remote, which isn't where the car is. So she has to press it to make it mip, mip. Uh, and of course, when she sees it, bip, so does the killer. So it's a thrilling moment where she has to run for the Mercedes. And she gets in it just in time and drives away. Similarly, she escapes out into the countryside, speeding. She's ecstatic to have got away as well. Speeding speeding her nuts off and is stopped summarily by a local traffic cop. Oh, Paul, this is speaking to you, isn't it? Yes, it is. (laughs) 
and uh, he's like, well, you know, you are you drunk? Are you driving under the influence? She's like, well, would I go to jail if that was the case? He'd be like, yeah, you'd be locked up and you won't be able to get out. He's like, she's like, yes, I'm drunk. Arrest me. I'm drunk. Lock me up. Almost hysterically, yeah. Okay. So as she's being put in the cop car, handcuffed. Delighted. Yeah. And, and delighted somewhat deranged, she has to be said. Unfortunately, the copper arresting her is run over. And I didn't see that come. The mask guy is here, and she's stuck handcuffed in the back of the cruiser. And the mask guy... Oh, tantalising. Approaches. She's trying to to get out of the car, but she can't because she's handcuffed and it's locked, presumably. And the mask guy gets a, a birthday candle and just drops it. And apparently the collision caused fuel to be spilling out of the cruiser. And it catches fire, and the whole. Can't There's almost a delightfully comic, gruesome image of like a, a, a splattered and sort of a desiccated. Or sorry, no, it's sort of a uh, the cop's body. The corpse is kind of you know cut in two and smashed on the road. Fleetingly shown, okay. So there's there's all kinds of sort of gruesome black humour going on here, but. I can understand your feeling toward the police at the moment, Paul, but I just want to... <laughs> we just got to highlight now that this is perhaps a moment of scientific inaccuracy in the film. Because do you know how... Well, imagine petrol is spilling out of a vehicle on a road. Do you think you would be able to light it and make the the car go on fire? I don't know about that. Well, Mythbusters tried this. Like petrol doesn't really burn that way if you spill it on the ground. And the reason is, if you think about it, petrol it's petrol vapour that is burnt in a car, for instance. Yeah. It has to be vaporized by a carburetor. Now, it's pretty volatile petrol, so there is vapour gassing off it all the time. But not if it's so, on the floor millimetres it's thick. Partic- yeah, if it's in a very yeah, a very thinly spread area and if it's on an absorbent material it's not going to be releasing vapour, certainly not to the concentration needed. So you won't be able, you can't effectively light, you know, a puddle of petrol spilt on the ground. I think some fuels will put a match out if you drop them in for this for basically the same reason. Mm-hmm. They have to be vaporised to, um, to ignite. So Mythbusters did a whole episode of this. It's quite interesting to watch. Uh, and certainly, cigarettes are really poor at lighting this stuff. Not that it was a cigarette in this instance, but, you know, pretty hopeless dropping a cigarette onto a, a patch of fuel. Because diesel works in a different way, doesn't it? Diesels don't have spark plugs, do they? They have glow plugs instead. They, they work in a completely different way, yeah. yeah. I think it's mostly the pressure. Again, it's vaporised in the in the car, isn't it? They, but it's, there's not that continuous... Sparking ignition sort of timing that has to be done with diesels is the. It's almost like I a think me- it's it's a mechanical timing. I think some sort of it's the yeah exactly it's the pressure of the the piston pressurizing the, the vapor to the exact pressure and presumably temperature. And the glow plug is maintaining the temperature. I think as well. Interesting. Uh, so yeah, obviously, completely took me out of this whole movie. Um, <laughs> like that you'd be able to burn burn the car from afar. So, obviously, she wakes up again. Uh, and now she's kind of cynical this time around, isn't it? Yeah. And she, she jumps up. She says, pointing to the today is the first day of the rest of your life. She points to that and says, I hate this sticker. 
this time she goes on the quad walk with Carter. Ah. And she predicts everything to prove to him what's going this on. This is when she sees the news report, I think. It's this is this Sprinkler, car alarm going off, the fainting pledge. Uh, she has a heart-to-heart with him in a diner. Um, and that's when they see the news report of the escapee. Sorry, it's this time round. I jumped the gun on this. But she's saying she's getting weaker and weaker every time she goes back. And yeah, as you say, on the news they see suspected murderer John Toombs is in hospital. So she goes there and tries to warn everyone. She winds up in hospital, grabs a fire axe from the wall. She finds a blood-splattered room. You know, you can see through the glass door that there's blood through there. And when she goes inside, I think a security guard has been killed. Of course, the masked guy pops out behind her uh, and has the security guard's gun and gives chase. Um, And as she's running away, Carter intervenes, doesn't he? He pops out from the corridor and grapples this guy. She tries to shoot to kill, to kill. But this she realizes something really important. Because Carter's neck has oh, just been cricked, hasn't yeah. it? Tombs snaps Carter's neck. Yeah, that's right. And when she's about to finally kill, she realizes Tombs, if she exits the loop right now, Carter will die. And she's become fond of Carter because he's been a nice guy to her he every is a time. Nice guy. And she doesn't know so, how good or bad he is in bed yet. So. So this moment is where she gets chased upstairs and she's trying to kind of entice this murderer to kill her. Uh, And at the top of the tower, because I think it wound up in a chapel at the hospital, she hangs herself to make sure that she can reset. So in this go-through, she grabs Carter's pillow. Now knowing who the murderer is, okay. So she now knows that she's got to get rid of John Toombs. And she has a plan. She does what we think is the final quad walk. She warns everybody about stuff that's happening, like the sprinklers going off. She places a pillow right where a pledge is about to faint while they're doing some kind of hazing ritual. She meets Tim. She tells him to be himself and not worry about being gay and stuff. Ends her affair with Dr. Butler. Ends her affair. She makes good, doesn't she, with all her... And and meets her father for lunch to say, really sorry that I've not got on with you since mum died. That's right. She winds up at the sorority meeting with the uh, with junk food to support the friend who got uh, ridiculed for it. She pours milkshake on the sorority queen, Danielle, for being rude. She kisses Carter the moment he shows up, meets her dad, reconciles. She gets kitted up then in the evening with a combat knife. She goes to the hospital. She takes the security guard's gun at knife point, tells him to go and get help. With one or two twists, including a safety catch... Uh, she battles Toombs. Um, Finally, dispatches he's him. Just, he's just about to kill her because he's grappled the gun away from her. But she timed it perfectly so the power brownout occurs. All the lights go out at 9.23. She grabs the gun and shoots him. He's not Anthony Hopkins, so he doesn't have any night vision. But what? she wakes up in Carter's place again. In the loop, stuck. Because afterwards she went for a romantic birthday, didn't she, with Carter after to celebrate. And they get the cupcake out that a roommate had given her and they'd shared it, you know, a little candle blow it out and they eat it. So she realises, if she's back again, that one, Tombs cannot be her killer. 
And that something else must have killed her. That she's died in her sleep. And she puts two and two together. It must be the cake is poisoned. That means... Laurie the bitch, her roommate, is the This is really cool. I love this twist. Yeah, because I was thinking this would be a good movie if it ended where it ended that point, you know, and she killed yeah. Tombs. It's like, yeah, nice movie. And I really didn't think that it was going to have this double twist at all. Of course, if it had ended, it would have left a lot of things like unresolved, like why was Laurie being so weird? But these are things you would only think about later, aren't they? Yeah. I thought it was very clever. So not only is this a kind of Groundhog Day, not only is it a bit of a scream slasher movie, yeah. a bit of a rom-com. It's certainly a comedy. It's also like an M. Night Shyamalan kind of twist at the end kind of thing, isn't it? Really cool. Really cool. So the idea is that Laurie had used Tombs as a scapegoat and had got him to do murders. Uh, and with placing but, a mask by his bed, etc., 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 she could easily frame him for the whole thing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, Laurie apparently was doing this because she fancied Dr. Greg. Yeah, who wouldn't? I mean... So that was why she was so salty about it. That was why she said those things when... She met her in the hospital. And of course, Laurie out. working either full-time, part-time, voluntary, whatever, in the hospital was ideally placed to organise this duplicity. Obviously, as Tree confronts Laurie, they have a bit of a fight. Uh, yeah. Tree kicks at Laurie in the pussy at some stage. <laughs> and then she, she winds up shoving the cake into Laurie's mouth. He's frantically then- trying to dig it out of her gob. She kicks her out of a window by swinging on a light fitting, which I thought was perhaps a bit risky because the light fitting would probably give way. Wouldn't it? And Laurie falls to a very splatterful death. And apparently uh, she manages to convince the police that <laughs> <laughs> kicking her roommate out the window was fine because she was actually a murderer. Don't know how she did that, but it's all okay. We see her later, Tree, with Carter. And Carter is amazed that Tree has never seen Groundhog Day and doesn't know who Bill Murray even is. Because <laughs> she's presumably Generation Alpha or whatever it is now. Meanwhile, her sorority sisters are giving TV interviews insisting uh, that Laurie was stupid because they would never even eat eaten a cupcake, even if they wanted to. So there we go. And then she wakes up the next day the same ringtone is playing that's woken up every day. Oh, think, oh God, not a just, third twist. <laughs> it's just Carter pranking her. It's <laughs> also some delightful anticlimax then. Yeah, and, and that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? So there we go. I saw a quote from uh, comic book writer Scott, Scott Lobdell, who I think wrote this, uh, saying that he wanted to play with the tropes of the slasher genre. And according to him, every slasher film opens with a mean girl getting killed and the good girl living till the end. And he was thinking, how can I make the mean girl and the good girl be the same person? (laughs) Ah. So, yeah, I mean, what do you think, Richard? I mean, I would say I I was worried it was going to be too lightweight and throffy. Uh, But it was just a nice cappuccino, wasn't it, really, in the end? I really enjoyed this. I did enjoy it's really, it, yeah. yeah. It's really well made. It's not... It's really well plotted. Yeah. It isn't uh, too cheesy, really. 
Okay, so it plays heavy on those tropes. But knowingly. You know, college yeah. tropes. Yeah, it's very knowing. It's very genre savvy. I think I saw this. No, Did you? I think I saw this partially uh-huh. on a plane. It's it's one of those plane movies that you start watching but fall asleep. Don't finish. Yeah, obviously you've got you like fall asleep. You have hazy memories of it. Or somebody has to go to the toilet. And you have to get up and you know, take a walk around the. Anyway, I don't think just I saw all there, was, there was one sixteen-hour flight where I decided not to do movies. I decided to do like the audio selection. This was like fifteen years ago when when that in-flight entertainment thing was like a new thing, kind of thing. And right. uh, they had, because I mean, these days you've got like, you know, the Arabian music channel, the sort of uh, generic pop channel, that kind of thing. But this is, you know, 15 years ago, maybe in the inception of this. And they had a channel of the most challenging kind of, I wouldn't say alternative <laughs> music, but it, it literally sounded like the noises you imagine would come from, you know, a criminal psychiatric institution, you know, set to music. Uh, and I fell asleep to it, and it, I had the weirdest <laughs> dreams during that flight. Sorry, Richard, so, so you were saying that. Yeah, no, uh, it's a strange space, isn't it? You get into on a long flight. Yeah. You when know, it, it's dark in the in the cabin, and all the everyone's got their little eye masks on, and you've got your headphones. You can convince yourself screen. it's your own little place, you know, you know. Your own little world, yeah. Yeah. All these bodies being transported. <laughs> And films hit differently. I may have said this before, but uh-huh. when you're on a plane, very emotional, you know, the slightest bit of smarmy cheesiness. And No, yeah, I hadn't really noticed that before, but you're right. Really, it makes it makes me weep. Almost any film can make me weep on a plane. It's amazing. Uh so yeah, very interesting emotional space it puts you in. Maybe it's the altitude. I don't know. The the low pressure. <laughs> I, I tell you what I loved about this music, uh, this movie, uh, Jessica, is, is is her journey, her transformation, you know. Absolutely. She moves yeah. through trauma to become hysterical, unhinged, and deranged. And uh, it's just it's just so well done. Like It is, yeah. yeah. Uh, the abandon, uh, you know, the, the kind of freedom that comes from failing to care about these, you know, little sorority rules anymore is kind of like, it's all tied in there. And it, it kind of moves with... With with her experience in the movie, so yeah, uh, I completely agree. It's a nice arc to take the character on, and it does achieve exactly what the right was talking about there. I think I think it's cute. Yeah, listen. Well, no surprise. I think we're going to be scoring this quite well. Aren't we? Oh, Best definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was really really convinced by uh, Jessica Jessica Roth. Is it uh, as yeah. uh, as the fe- as the lead female just. Just everything she did was right here. She just she got that kind of you know slightly nasty, quite nasty, or oh, nasty uh, valley esque uh, sorority girl down to a T, and and then her vulnerabilities as well uh, uh, was all really well evoked. So I think she carried a lot of the movie. Uh, uh, but she had to rightfully yeah. so. I mean. Uh, yeah, great. I mean, so for her and her alone and the other people that acted well in it, I, I've got to give it an 8.5 for acting. Yeah. I'll, she was standout, wasn't she? Yeah. I'll give it an 8 uh, as well. On to plot. I think maybe the strongest point here uh, of the whole movie was the plot. I mean, 
yes, I mean, it followed quite a lot of tropes. Uh, I, I did enjoy the happy ending, really, although I didn't really want it to end like that. Because essentially, only a couple of bad people have died, haven't they? Uh, we don't get... I think in the final... I, it would have been nicer in the final, you know, iteration of her of her Groundhog Day if she'd had to decide to, you know, let everybody die instead of her and a and a paramour. It would have been. Oh right, you mean you want to give like a Hobson's choice kind of? Yes, thing? you know, divert the tra- tra- divert or don't divert the tram kind of thing to alternative lines, uh, given her knowledge of, of what was the repeated future or the, re- the repeated present. Uh, Nonetheless, a really, really strong plot for me. Just very tightly, tightly knit. Uh, a nine. Well, I mean, you could argue that you could argue that the whole scheme of the murderer was not totally convincing. No, it wasn't. No, no. that's the weakness. So, for that weakness, I'll give it an eight. But otherwise, a cute repeating time story um an eight for me okay third category uh humor slash balance yeah no it's nice isn't it it's Mm. nicely uh humorous where it needs to be uh it again it's something that we mentioned when we were talking about trust but it's it's very reminiscent of 80s kind of john yuzi type movies it's got a light-hearted frothiness about it. You described it as a cappuccino, didn't you? Yeah. Perhaps 60 minutes ago or so. Uh, so <laughs> I think it it, it it maintains a nice balance. I know some people have criticised it for being like a bloodless slasher movie. Well, he toned it down, to... didn't he? he? It was meant to be highly R-rated, uh, but it was rewritten to be like it is, which is... You don't see a lot of gore, do you? But, you know, like, how can you sell the silly concept of the time repeat yeah. in a really serious horror movie? You can't. No, I think it hit the tongue. I think his tongue was, was, was spot on there. And I, I thought so, a lot of the humour, some of it was quite black, uh, but a lot of it was just entertainingly and pithily observed, you know, so. Yeah, I'll give it a seven. A seven from me. Oh, sorry, a 7.5 from me. Okay. Is that it? Is I that think that's categories? it, yeah. yeah. Let's move to three categorizations. Overall, then, uh, I've got no complaints here. I enjoyed this. It's some, somewhere between a seven and an eight. I don't know. And your final score would be? Uh, 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 I have to choose one. I'll go 7.5. I'm going to go 8.5. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm always a fan of a movie that ends within 100 minutes. So, you know, I think it has to be has to be 8.5 because of that. I don't think we are... I don't think we're on board with the rest of the world. Like, most people don't think this is a very good movie. Really? I think that's true, looking at IMDb. I mean, it was a box office smash, wasn't it? They made it for $4 million and it pulled in 125 or so. So I don't really know... Well, how is it Rotten Tomatoes you're looking at? Uh, oh, six point something? Yeah, I mean, I would say that's... Middling to middling good, isn't it? Oh, we should use our new service. We should use Letterboxd and see what they say on there, shouldn't we? It's certainly not the 8.5 score category uh, uh, among audiences. The one I'm looking at here is Rotten Tomatoes. About 70. That's reviews. 
Okay. 3.1 Stars out of five. Out of five yeah, it's a 60%, isn't it? Okay. Audience reviews 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. So you're right, actually. Not, It's not strongly received, is it? There is a sequel. Now, ah. I don't know how you tackle a sequel convincingly, because you, you, how can you get the same story arc with our hero, Tree, when she's already been through that? I don't know. So I'm... I'm a bit worried about a sequel. But there is one. I mean, is it that kind of horror sequel where it's made by a completely different company? No, it's not, I presume. No, it's Christopher Landon. I've just checked it up. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it's the same production, the same writer. So, presumably. That school is even worse, stuff, I'm afraid. Does it? But, yeah. Which, but which of the Silence like of the Lambs just stopped being part of the franchise? I do. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, which is the uh, other I mean, one? I... Uh, oh, Terminator, I think. Like, did Terminator find? Was it just like made by completely different people at some point? Yeah, I think Terminator went off the rails after three. After three. Yeah. Three was definitely part of the franchise, so. wasn't it? Think... Well then, Paul, we're all done here, aren't yeah, we? Definite recommend, yeah. Happy Death Day. It only remains for us to choose the next film. Now, since we did... By accident, all romantic films for February. We need a change of tone, don't we? A change of tone, yeah. Now, we could carry on the time travel for March, which has got a time-related Yeah, connection here, isn't there? Or we could take the the Roman word for Mars. The uh, road less travelled, yes. Mars, the god of war. We could look at war movies for this month, couldn't we? Oh, okay. And there is a very... um, What's the word? Uh, a, a much vaunted war movie out at the moment on streaming services. The remake of All Quiet on the Western Front. Okay, so All Quiet on the Western Front war movie. Uh, I'm going to throw something in here completely out of out of the blue. That safety not guaranteed. Okay. Ah. And you were thinking of time travel. What would that be? My time. Well, I think safety not guaranteed is a time travel esque movie. Yeah. My suggestion, and I'd love to watch Safety Not Guaranteed, uh, but my suggestion would be a one-cut movie, similar to One Cut of the Dead. I think it's Japanese. And it is called Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. Sounds intriguing. Is this the one that is billed as Tenant without $199 million of budget? Uh, I think it's your turn to choose. Is it really? Right, okay. Well, I would like to watch All Quiet on the Western Front. However, I'm going to have to go for Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes because it sounds just too intriguing. And we've had a slew of Japanese entries to Drive-By Cinema, all of which have really, you know, delivered the goods. So I'm holding out high hopes that this is going to be another lip-smacker of a movie. Right, well, it's one cut, so let's see. So that's... Be beyond the infinite two minutes. Indeed. For next week's Drive-By Cinema. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Ciao for now. See you on the next one. Thank you.